I am your host, VS Coogan, and welcome to The Maverick On Air, where every month I introduce you to some of the most unique minds around the world who have chosen the path less traveled, challenge conventional wisdom, and are pushing the boundary of achievement. Join me on this journey as I try and unravel the secrets to their success to help inspire you to be all that you can be. My guest today is Massimo Piolucci. He's a professor of philosophy at the City College of New York and is a highly sought after expert in the field of Stoic philosophy. He has a PhD in evolutionary biology from the University of Connecticut and a PhD in philosophy from the University of Tennessee. Massimo has published 165 technical papers in science and philosophy and is the author of the best-selling book How to Be a Stoic, Using Ancient Philosophy to Live a Modern Life. Nassimo is a former TEDx speaker on the topic of Stoicism as a philosophy for an ordinary life, and his work to date has been a driving force in the resurgence of Stoicism in the United States. Nassimo, a very warm welcome to the Maverick on Air. It's great to have you on the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you. In this particular podcast, Nassimo, what I want to do is cover what Stoicism is on a higher level, but delve more deep into the practicalities of Stoicism, which is what makes it such a great and applicable philosophy, especially given the times that we are all living in. Now, for all those listening who are hearing about Stoicism for the first time, it would be really good if you could give us an overview of what exactly it is and how it came about. Well, Stoicism is a a Greek-Roman philosophy of life that... um, was introduced around 300 BCE by a guy named Zeno of Citium, who was a Phoenician merchant who had lost everything in a shipwreck and started studying philosophy as a, as a result, and then eventually developed his own. His own. It is a philosophy of life, uh, so in a sense, it serves the same purpose as other philosophies of life, such as Buddhism or Confucianism or, or Taoism, to pick from the Eastern tradition, and in a sense, it serves the same purpose as religion, although it is not itself a religion. But if you're a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew or anything else, uh, you essentially have three components that help you in life from whatever your religion or philosophy of life happens to be. One is a metaphysics, that is an account of how the world works. Right? So if you're a Christian, you believe that the world was you know, created by a creator God that has certain attributes and so on and so forth. If you are a Stoic, you believe that the world is a natural process, it's a result of natural processes, and it is, and the things are interconnected by a cosmic web of cause and effect. Then there is an ethics. Uh, the ethics is an account of how you should live your life, and particularly how you should uh, interact with other people. Right? So if you're a Christian, uh, that would be, you know, you need to use Jesus as a, as a model and practice pretty much the kind of life that uh, is described in the Gospels. If you are a Buddhist, uh, you believe that uh, suffering is the major problem that uh, uh, that afflicts humanity, and then you should try to do whatever it is that is in your power to alleviate suffering and so on. If you're a stoic, you think that the most important thing in life is to improve your own character and judgment, and the reason for that is because that makes you a better human being, uh, a better member of what the stoics call the human cosmopolis, the universal city mm-hmm. of human beings. And then finally, there is a third component in most philosophies and religion, religions, and that is a practice, a set of practices. Right? So if you're a Christian, you go to church, that's a practice, or you read the Gospels and reflect on them. Uh, you pray, that's also a practice. If you're a Buddhist, uh, you go to the temple, you, you meditate, uh, you, know, you read uh, books, scriptures, and so on and so forth. And 
if you are Stoic, you practice a number of exercises that people have so elaborated on the basis of the ancient text, updated to whatever modern science tells us work or doesn't work. And you also read texts and reflect on them uh, and you know that sort of thing. So, so in a sense, Stoicism is one of a number of options in terms of philosophies of life or religions that provide you with a a compass to navigate your life, for a framework to navigate your life in the best way possible. The goal is to get to the end of your life and not regret it, and not, mm. not look back and say, oh, damn, that was, that was not well done. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which, and, you know, I assume nobody wants to get there to that point uh, in, in that sort of situation. Mm-hmm. Okay. And your background, um, much of your earlier work was in biology and genetics, if I'm not mistaken. So what was it that drew you to explore the field of Stoicism and become a daily Stoic practitioner? Uh, mid, mid-Christ, life, uh, mid-Christ life, life in uh, a few years ago, uh, since when I was a kid, I, was, uh, I grew up Catholic. So for until I was about a teenager, I, I considered myself a Catholic. And then, you know, religion just, that, well, a particular religion just wasn't working for me. There were too many things that didn't make much sense to me. And so after that, I considered myself a secular humanist. Um, however, when, when midlife crisis hit, uh, secular humanism didn't, wasn't particularly helpful. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a set of, you know, broad precepts such as, you know, human beings are made for cooperation and we should be helpful to each other, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's fine. But what am I going to do when my wife divorces me or when uh, my, my father dies or when there is a major change in, for unforeseen change in my career or things like that? You know, that, that it wasn't, it turned out not to be particularly useful. So that got me into onto a quest, so, so to speak, for a better framework, better philosophical framework. And I explored a number of possibilities, including Buddhism, in fact, uh, but also uh, Aristotelian philosophy, as well as uh, Epicureanism. And then uh, one day I rediscovered Stoicism because I I'd studied a little bit uh, the Stoic authors when I was in high school uh, and uh, and college, but it never never clicked with me. Never never actually uh, I never put it together. And when I, once I discovered Stoicism, the first author that I read was Epictetus. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is, uh, so, so Epictetus struck me as immediately relatable, uh, he has a great sense of humor, he's no-nonsense, he's, he's very practical, and I never heard of the guy. Even though I had a PhD in philosophy, I never heard of this guy, and I said, how is that even, even possible? And the reason for that is because Epictetus was actually a major philosopher uh, throughout the, you know, the last two millennia, and then he kind of went into, an, in, into a little bit of an eclipse at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, people started not, you know, not reading Epictetus or the Stoics in general. And that changed only over the last 10 years or so, 10 to 15 years or so, where people rediscovered Stoicism, and in particular Epictetus. Although also the other two major uh, Stoic authors, Roman Stoic authors, Marcus Aurelius and Seneca. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. And you just mentioned that you did study Buddhism and um, amongst other religions, but Stoicism was something that you gravitated towards more and was able to relate to it what is it about you know if we just take buddhism and stoicism as a comparison what is it about stoicism that drew you in that buddhism couldn't do so to some extent i'm sure this is a matter of cultural background right mm-hmm. so so i was grew, you know i grew up in a in a sort of classical western 
uh, background. I studied the Greeks and the Romans when I was in school, so it was simply that the, lin- the language is much more familiar to me. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure that if I'd grown up in a Buddhist country, things would be very different. Yeah. Um, although, as you know, Buddhism is actually fairly popular in the West as well, so it's not, it's not simply a matter of cultural background. Um, in my particular case, the thing that um, I found interesting in Buddhism is that the ethics seems to be uh, to work for me. It's, it's, uh, and in fact, Buddhist ethics is not that different from Stoic ethics. As it turns out, the, the language is different, but the precepts, the general idea is pretty much the same. Uh, however, Buddhist metaphysics is very different. And that to me was entirely alien. I couldn't, uh, uh, I couldn't buy into anything like karma or you know, reincarnation, things like that. Uh, and uh, the stoic uh, metaphysics on the other end, which is materialist, the world is made of stuff. You die when when you die, you die, and that's it. There's no you know, survival of the soul or nothing like that. That that struck me as more in sync with my scientifically informed understanding of the world. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, the the caveat there, of course, is that we shouldn't even be talking about Buddhism in the singular, but rather in plural, because the Buddhist traditions are so old and uninterrupted for the last two and a half millennia, which that that now they've become a family of different kinds of traditions. There are secular Buddhists, for instance. Um, that would reject uh, a lot of the metaphysics that actually was didn't click with me. So, so that is a possibility as well, but mm-hmm. that's not the one that I decided to pursue. And if we go back to Stoicism, you know, the dichotomy of control is a major pillar in Stoicism. You know, this idea that control what you can control and let go of everything else. Can you help explain this concept further? And if you can maybe share some real life examples that can help illustrate this and that we can relate to. Yeah, the, the, the so-called dichotomy of control, although that's a modern term, actually, I, I believe introduced by uh, Bill Irvine, uh, you don't find it in the ancient Stoics, uh, is a crucial idea that has been uh, present from the beginning of Stoicism, but is particularly prominent in Epictetus. Uh, I don't like the word control because, unfortunately, it lends itself to all sorts of misconceptions about what it is that we're talking about. So uh, an alternative sometimes used is the Stoic fork. Uh, there are some things that are up to you and other things that are not up to you. And here's what Epictetus means by that. In some, for some things, and this, as it turns out, it's a very limited number of things, the buck, so to speak, stops with you, uh, meaning that you are responsible for those things, ultimately. Uh, those things are your own judgment, deliberate judgments, the kind of stuff that you actually think about carefully and, and you say, yeah, that's, this is a good idea. Your endorsed values, so the kinds of things that, again, you think are valuable or not valuable, uh, and your decisions to act or not to act. Those are pretty much the only things that are up to you, as Epictetus puts it, meaning that your agency is maximized in those situations, uh, and the ultimate word is yours. Obviously, for instance, people can certainly affect my opinions, they can influence my opinions. But ultimately, if, if I defend an opinion, it's, it's up to me, it's on me. Right? If, you, if you disagree with something, if I say, you know, um, sexism is a great thing, and you say, well, what the hell, what are you talking about? Um, well, I have to defend it. I don't. I can't say, well, this other guy said so, or you know, I read it somewhere. It's like, no. If it, if it is my endorsed opinion, then then I it is up to me to own up to it, basically, right? And same with actions. If I decide to do something or decide not to do something, then I can be praised or blamed for that because it is my decision. Nobody else. It's nobody else's decision. Now, the things that are not up to us, according to Epictetus, are pretty much everything else. And that's the part that confuses people. It's like, wait, what do you mean? Uh, because those parts includes health, wealth, reputation, career, you know, all these things that we think that we cannot control or we want to control or we wish to control. 
And let, let's talk specifically about health since we're in the middle of a pandemic. And it's, it's an obviously pertinent example. So what, is it, what does it mean that health is not up to me? Obviously, I can do things to improve or maintain my health, right? I can go to the gym, well, when the gyms are open, now that I'm home, I exercise from home. But, you know, I can exercise regularly. Um, I can uh, eat a, a healthy diet. I can check with my doctor on a regular basis to practice preventive medicine. Uh, you know, all those things I can definitely do. I can be more or less careful with, with my health. And yet, a virus can come out of nowhere, in this particular case, out of China, and strike me. Uh, and there's, you know, none of those things that I've done is going to be particularly, uh, you know, relevant. It's just the virus comes in and that's it. Or I can, I go down uh, downstairs, I cross the street and somebody uh, with a car hits me and my, my bones are going to break and I end up in the hospital. Those things are not, in other words, health is not ultimately up to Yes, I can influence it. But the last word, so to speak, is uh, the result of uh, external circumstances, right? So in other words, we have a diminished agency when it comes to these external things, according to Epictetus. And so the wise thing to do, therefore, for the Stoics is to focus as much as you can on the, where your agency is maximized, on your own decisions, on your own judgments, on your own values, and then develop an attitude of equanimity toward the rest, toward the outcomes. Right? So let's take again the example of my, my health. I can certainly maximize my agency by deciding what to eat, and not to eat by deciding whether to exercise or not, why decided all these other things, right? Those are up to me. There's no question about it. And that's what my focus should be. However, if then I maintain my health or not, if I get sick or not, that is not up to me. It's not ultimately up to me. Therefore, I ought to be okay either way. Uh, because it's not a reflection on my, if I get sick, despite the fact that I've done everything that I could not to get sick, well, that's not a reflection on me. It's not a, my poor efforts. It's just stuff happens. And, you know, as adults, we agree, we understand that sometimes life works your way and other times it doesn't. And when it doesn't, because we're adults and not children, we're not going to throw a tantrum. We're just going to say, oh, well, this kind of stuff happened. I knew that this could happen. Yeah, sure. And so, okay, so essentially influence what you can influence and forget about the rest. Now, you mentioned health. Yeah. So, sorry, no, I, I wouldn't say forget because that, sounds, that unfortunately sounds as uh, one, of, one of the typical criticism of stoicism is that it is a quietist philosophy. It's like, oh, you don't care about the outcomes. You know, you don't, you don't, therefore, you don't do anything. No, I do care about being healthy. It's mm. certainly preferred than, you know, rather than being sick. It's just that you, you bring to the problem a attitude of I'm doing my best, but if something happens, I just have to be okay with it. It just I had to accept it because this is the way the works. The, the world works. Okay, yeah, sure. And you mentioned health, which is a great example given the current times. Can it apply to every aspect of life? So business, whether you're an aspiring athlete. Yeah, it does. So, and in one way to uh, to recognize this is that essentially what the Stoics are saying is to internalize your goals. So let's say you're an athlete and you are competing, you know, an international tennis tournament or something like that, right? And typically, the, the, you know, it is natural for us to uh, focus on the outcome. I want to win the game. But that's, according to the Stoics, the wrong thing to do because winning the game is not up to you. It depends not just on your efforts, which are up to you, but also on who your opponent is, on their efforts, on the, on the referee, on the meteorological conditions, you know, all sorts of stuff uh, on the terrain. You know, it depends on a bunch of things. So focusing on the external, on the outcome, is not helpful. What I should do is to focus, internalize my goal. My goal should be not to win the game, but to do my best, to play my best game. Right? 
And if I play my best game and I lose, I'm okay with that because I did my best. You know, what else could I possibly do? If I did my best, that's, that's it. It means that, you know, the other guy was better than I, than I am as a tennis player. And that's, that's okay. That's, that's fine. Um, the same goes for every other thing we do. You know, oh, I want to get that job. No, you want to do your best at the job interview. Uh, whether you get the job or not, it's not entirely up to you. Uh, it depends on other you know, circumstances. Oh, I want that person to love me. No, you want to be lovable for that person, right? That whether she or he loves you back, that's up to them, not up, not up to you, and so on and so forth. Um, so that's the general, general idea. Okay, interesting. And um, you know, the stoic approach to failure and success is something that I personally find very interesting. Um, you know, the, their approach is if you fail, don't take it personally as long as you did your best. And likewise, if you succeed, don't let it get to your head because it wasn't entirely... Uh, down to you there are other forces in play here um could you talk to us a bit about that yeah no that's that's exactly right if it doesn't if what we're just talking about doesn't only apply to where you fail but also when you succeed so it's like oh i won the game it's, you know good for me it's like yeah but wait you also you won the game for a number of reasons one of which certainly is that you are you know a decent player that you you trained and everything else but that's also because your opponent wasn't apparently that strong or because you know the the referee favored you just by even by chance uh, or, or because things went that way and so on so for all other things oh i I'm, i got a lot of, i made a lot of money on the stock market well you think that's up to you i mean you certainly can make decisions that influence your chances of making a good you know cashing in on the stock market but the stock market depends on so many other variables that if it goes your way you shouldn't take too much credit uh, because a lot of the stuff that was going on there was actually not up to you. Similarly, as we were saying, you shouldn't take the blame if things don't go well or the full blame because you should take the blame only for those things that you actually have made decisions about, only, only for your own decisions. In a sense, uh, one of the reasons I like this approach is because uh, other than, honestly, I do think it's more adult. It, it, has, it reflects a, a better understanding of, of how the world works. Uh, it, it puts your agency in the right proportion. We can actually do far less than we think we can. We can control far less than we normally think we can control. So it's a more realistic view of how things are. But it also takes, takes a lot of burden off of you. Mm -hmm. Because if you insist in wanting to control outcomes, your life is going to be miserable. <laughs> because outcomes, one of these days, will not work your way. There's just, you know, no, nobody goes through his life always winning. Uh, at the very least, you're going to lose uh, your parents, you're going to lose some of your friends, you're going to lose you know, a, a number of things that you really don't want to lose. And yet, that's, that's the way life is. So if you take the stoic approach, you're betting your happiness, in a sense, on things that are, in fact, up to you, things that are under your control. I am going to be, I'm trying to train myself to be happy with my own efforts. Sure. And not with the outcomes. Of course, as you know, efforts and outcomes are related. It's not like they're independent. Obviously, if you, you know, if you make a good effort in terms of preserving your health, you're more likely than not to remain healthy. If you make a good effort for your job interview, you're more likely than not to get the job. Uh, if you make an effort about maintaining your relationship, you're more likely than not to actually maintain your relationship. The two are obviously related, but they're not related in a way that, is that, that your efforts give you a guaranteed outcome. That's, that's the problem. That's okay. it. No, that's interesting. And um, another area that I guess stoicism adds a lot of value is how we deal with emotions. Um, and, and I find it very timely, you know, in the world we live in now, there's, 
increasing levels of um, anxiety, depression, their specific retreats, meditation retreats, and, you know, there's a frightening amount of people taking drugs like uh, Prozac, etc. Um, now, the, the Stoics have a very interesting way of how we deal with emotions. I think even Seneca wrote an entire book on anger and how to yeah. approach anger. It would be good if you can talk to us about um, how the Stoics approached um, the various emotions that humans get. Yeah, it's a great question. Let, let me start by clearing a potential misconception, which in my experience always comes up. Stoics are not in the business of suppressing emotions, for one thing, because it's impossible to suppress emotions. But moreover, uh, often people hear you know, a Stoic talk or, or, or read a Stoic text, and they think that the, that the Stoics make this sharp distinction between reason on the one hand and emotion on the other hand. That's not Stoics. That's Platonism. Plato makes that, that kind of distinction. The Stoics are very clear. They think that the mind is one thing. It's a unitary, they have a unitary conception of the mind. So emotions and reason are meshed together. They're all one thing. And in fact, according to Stoic psychology, emotions are a type of reasoning. And when they go bad, that means that you you've have, in fact, engaged in some kind of negative, of, of, you know, improper sort of reasoning. So for instance, when somebody insults me, right, and I get angry, uh, that is because I have assented, to use uh, Stoic uh, lingo, to the proposition that an insult is actually something terrible. Um, but the Stoics reject that proposition. They say, no, what are you talking about? An insult is simply somebody opening their mouth and, and, and you know, moving air. Um, whether that, that movement of air actually affects you or not, it's entirely up to you. If you just move on and you say, okay, whatever, that's what you think, I'm, I'm fine, go. Uh, then the insult falls flat. So getting, getting upset if somebody insults you, according to the Stoics, is simply bad reasoning. Um, mm -hmm. And therefore, it can be corrected. Right? Because anytime you engage in bad reasoning, you can stop and think about it and say, oh, wait a minute, that was bad reasoning. So let me rephrase this thing. So negative emotions, which, which uh, the Stoics, uh, a group in which the Stoics included anger, fear, uh, anxiety, things like that, those are the results of bad reasoning. But then there is, like, conversely, there are positive emotions, which are the result of good reasoning, right? So joy, um, uh, love uh, in, in, certain, in, in a certain way of, of thinking about love, not love in, the, in, in general, but love, for instance, for your partner, uh, love for uh, learning, love for uh, certain values, and so on and so forth. Uh, those are positive emotions. So in other words, the Stoics made this, this division, distinction between emotions that are contrary to reason and emotions that are in agreement with reason. Now, the interesting thing to me as a scientist is that when I look at the modern literature on cognitive science literature on emotions, it looks like the Stoics got a lot of the story right. Of course, the Stoics didn't know anything about cognitive science or, or brain anatomy or anything like that. In fact, they were mistaken uh, about where the, the emotion and reason actually reside. They thought that they reside in the heart. And obviously, that's not the case. They, they reside in the, in the, in the brain. Um, but they got the big picture right. Because, in fact, modern cognitive scientists do agree that emotions are the result of implied judgments, implied cognitive judgments. You know, when we do get upset about things, it's because we are assenting, we're agreeing with a certain kind of reasoning. And that reasoning is often uh, not stated explicitly. But if somebody, you know, if you get angry and somebody says, and you might not even know why exactly, yeah? you might not have thought about it. But if somebody says, why are you angry? Usually you, you're able to tell the story. So, well, this happened and this happened and this, this was unjust and so on and so on. In so doing, you're basically making explicit your own reasoning that led you to be angry. 
Now, the interesting trick here is if while you do that, you stop and think about it and say, wait a minute. So, but wait a minute, that, that's the reason why I got angry? Well, that's not a good reason. That's, uh, you know, let me think about this stuff, this stuff a little bit more carefully. And therefore, you engage your emotions uh, in, in the sense that you're trying to, to move away from the disruptive ones, from the negative ones, from the ones that actually get in the way of your living a good life. And you are, you are positively endorsing and cultivating the good, the positive emotions, the ones that actually make your life better. Okay, no, that's interesting. So instead of reacting to the emotions, we should observe the emotions so it doesn't have that emotional grip on us. And as you say, rather than you know trying to suppress the emotions, which is a common misconception of stoicism, you should try and shift the negative emotions over to positive. Is that correct? That's right. So Epictetus, in uh, in a couple of places, uh, one in the discourses and one in the, in the handbook, actually explicitly tells you, you know, you should look at your impression. He calls it impression. An impression is you know, your first reaction to something. And you should look at your impression. Instead of immediately agreeing with it, you should say, wait a minute, let me look at you more carefully. You're just an impression, but maybe maybe this is the wrong impression. Maybe I have the wrong understanding of what's going on there, so slow down. In a sense, it's kind of the opposite of the famous commercial. Don't just do it. Mm. Stop, pause, relax, think about it, and then decide whether you want to do it or not. Sometimes it might, it might turn out that your first impression was actually correct. And sometimes we are, you know, our instinctual reactions sometimes are correct, and we do need to, in fact, act in a certain way. But a lot of the times, the stoic, the stoic bet that a lot of the times that's not the case, that, that if you slow down, and, and think about it. If you engage what modern, uh, uh, you know, modern Nobel Prize winner um, uh, Daniel Kahneman, who wrote this famous book, uh, "Thinking Fast and Slow," he thinks that there are essentially two modes of thinking that human beings have. One is fast and ten- tends to be instinctual, you know, immediate, and the other one is slower and it's more based on explicit reasoning. And essentially, what the Stoics are saying is that whenever possible, you should slow down. You should move from away from the from the fast thinking and trying to do to engage in the in the slow thinking because it's more reliable. It's not always possible. You know, if somebody comes at you with a knife, let's say, and you know, and tries to kill you, uh, I wouldn't stop and think and all that sort of stuff. I would react. I would trust my instincts. Sure. Right? Either run away or confront the the, the situation if if you can. Um, but most of the time, we're not actually faced with that sort of situation. Most of the times we're faced with situations that are actually predictable. Uh, you know, one of your colleagues is annoying and he keeps being annoying every day right? or, or every week. Uh, or your partner has certain issues and those are the same issues. It's not like that she or, or he comes up with a new issue every day. They, they tend to be sort of a, So it is the kind of stuff that you can actually pause and say, okay, wait a minute. Mm. why am I reacting this way? And what would be a better way to react? Yeah, I'm um, just from my own personal experience. It's definitely a tricky skill to master. I think what's helped me is kind of take a step back and think, right, if I act um, upon this emotion, what are the repercussions? What are the consequences of this? And I think Seneca uh, famously says anger is a temporary madness. Um, right. And I think that's a, that's, a, that's a great way to put it, because if you react when you're angry, the anger, I guess, takes over um, the reason. Um, yes. So you will always um, regret it, right? <laughs> that's right. It, it, as I said, anger is a type of reasoning. It's a, type, it's, a, it's a result of a type of reasoning, and it's bad, it's flawed reasoning. So if you act on the basis of anger, you're probably going to regret it, even if your anger was justified, mm. right? even if it was initially justified. Uh, the classic uh, example that the Stoics, uh, both, both Seneca and Epictetus, bring up is Medea. 
the the uh, this woman from ancient mythology, Greek mythology, who was engaged with Jason the Argonaut, and they had children. And then when Jason, when they got back to Greece, she was a barbarian. She was from outside of Greece. When they got back to Greece, basically Jason dropped her uh, like a hot potato and went for a Greek princess, right? Uh, and uh, and Medea got angry. And as a result, now the anger was justified because she was in fact uh, being subjected to an injustice, right? She, she had helped Jason uh, accomplish his goal uh, during his mission with the Argonauts and she, he had made promises and they had children together, right? So, so he was definitely not doing the right thing by her. So the anger was in fact justified, but then she acted on anger, on the, on the basis of that anger and ended up uh, in revenge, killing her own children, which is obviously a horrible thing thing to do. So that was that's the point. It's not that the anger is necessarily unjustified. It's that acting on anger is probably not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, now Seneca, as you said, wrote an entire book on on anger. And interestingly, if you go and check the uh, American Psychological Association website on anger management, it like eighty percent of it is ang- is Seneca, uh, and it's essentially the same advice that Seneca gave gave us almost 2,000 years ago. And Seneca says there are, there are three uh, phases of anger. The first one is when, you've, when you initially feel like you're getting angry, like that physiological reaction that you have, like, right? you feel your blood begins to, to boil. And he says, there's nothing you can do about that one. That's an automatic reaction. That's like, like blushing. Mm-hmm. You don't control blushing. There's, there's, don't even think about, you know, try to, to control it because it's like, it's, it's a physiological reaction. Nothing to do. Then there is a small window of opportunity when you perceive the physiological reaction and you start reasoning about it, thinking about it, and say, and basically telling yourself, not not these many words necessarily, but oh, I'm getting angry. There's a reason why I'm getting angry. Right? Mm. And that is the window where you can act and disengage. Say, oh, wait a minute, I'm getting angry. I better get out of here. If that window passes, then anger at that point is completely overtaken your ability to reason correctly, and then you're going to act and you're probably going to regret it. So Seneca doesn't say to, uh, that we should suppress anger. We should, in fact, be alert at the first sign of it and run away, disengage. Right? He says, you know, go out for a walk, count until 20, uh, you know, do whatever it is, you know, deep breathing, whatever it is that calms you down. And once you're calm, you're calm. Once you're back to a more or less normal self, then it's time to reason about it and say, okay, what was going on there? What, what made me so angry and what, what would be a good way, a reasonable way to actually address the situation, whatever the situation happens to be? Interesting. So it's that personal reflection. Um, Seneca also said, you know, prepared mind is best way to react to a problem. Uh, you know, if you can visualize ahead of time, that's always best. And I think Epictetus also said something quite similar, which is every time you go out, you know, think of what can happen. And I'm hoping you might be able to uh, help me with this misconception, because just from from those texts alone, it may seem that um, there's, you know, there's a tendency to live your life in a negative way. Um, and it's not, it's, it's not nice. You know, somebody might read that and think, well, I don't want to think what might go wrong because that's what a, what a horrible way to live your life. Um, yeah. is, is that what they mean or, or <laughs> not really? Well, what they, what they mean is that you should expect uh, things not to go the way you want them to, to, to go and therefore be prepared. So, you should contemplate, uh, you know, what is called a negative, a negative visualization or, or a contemplation of adversity. But notice that it's a contemplation, 
Mm. In other words, you should do that in a detached way, not as, oh my God, this is going to go wrong and what am I going to do? Because if you react that way, then it's not good. that's not good. Then, then you're really going to make yourself, your life miserable. Basically, what you should do is understand and accept from the get-go that although you want one particular outcome, things may go the other way. And, then, and you should tell yourself, I'm going to be okay with that. Let me give you a specific, a personal example of the last big time that I did something like that. This was a, uh, about a year and a half ago or something like that. I mean, I do this exercise actually regular, regularly. But a year and a half ago, this was a really big uh, situation. Uh, I wanted to propose to my uh, you know, girlfriend. And typically, you tend to think in the positive. Right? It's like, oh, this is all exciting. This is going to happen. I, you know, I got the ring and all that sort of stuff, um, which is, of course, what, what was happening there. But at the same time, I wrote in my, in my journal, in my philosophical diary, and I said, okay, but remember, she may say no. I don't think so, but she may. And if she does, you have to be okay with it. It's not the end of the world. It would, obviously, it's not the outcome you hope. Uh, obviously, this would be a setback in your life for a number of reasons. But you know what? You're going to be alive, nevertheless. You're going to be fine. You're going to survive that, that, that situation. And, you know, and there will be other, other situations in the rest of your life. And I felt at peace. So when I actually did uh, propose, it's like, okay, I'm expecting the worst. I'm obviously, obviously hoping for the best. And the result was that the best did happen. And so now we're happily married. And she, oh, no, she's in the other room now <laughs> doing her own things. But, um, so that's the, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. Because the, the issue is if you actually don't expect, if you don't contemplate a possible negative outcome, mm. then you're going to go through life from one this, you know, opening yourself to serious disappointments. Sure. Uh, you know, to this, to, and which you might have a hard, hard time dealing with. You know, expecting certain things is, as Seneca says, uh, prepares your mind. And, and a prepared mind deals with setbacks much better than a mind that it was overly optimistic and never expects any setbacks. And then when the thing happens, like, oh my gosh, this is a catastrophe. Yeah. Well, it's not a catastrophe, it's a setback, but mm, there's a difference okay. there. Very interesting. And one of the real eye-opening insights for me personally about the Stoics was how death was at the forefront of their minds and how they've meditated on their own mortality and accept the fact that you know death may come um, knocking at any time and we shouldn't live our lives as though it's something that's many many years away in the distant future um, a couple of questions that come to mind Masima why do you think the Stoics were able to accept the reality of death more openly and not let it, let it have such an emotional control over their lives um, they were not the only ones. The, the Epicureans had the exact same attitude uh, toward, toward death. And uh, I mean, there is two reasons, a couple of reasons why, why this is important. That's, this is another one of those things like, what do you guys, what do you guys spend your time thinking about death? Yeah. And it's like, isn't that depressing? It's like, uh, again, no, it isn't depressing if you do it the right way. Sure, if you I, uh, get up in the morning and say, oh my gosh, I have to die and I have no idea when, then that, that's going to get really depressing and it's not, not a good way to do it. But if you get up in the morning and say, okay, uh, Seneca actually explicitly says that. You get up in the morning and you say, oh, I have another day. Great. Let me, let me see what I can do with this. Uh, you know, well, let, me, let me see how I can live life to the fullest because I don't know when my last day is going to be. You know, I have statistical expectations, but I don't know. Uh, like I was reading, for instance, just this morning, an article in the New York Times, which is very interesting. Apparently, there is a common measure, quantitative measure, by which you can compare the risk of different kinds of activities or situations. It's called a micromort. And a micromort means when you experience one micromort, you have one chance in a million to die. 
out of that particular experience. Now, here's the interesting fa fact. In, in, uh, uh, the average American experiences one micromorph a day in their lives. In other words, every day you get up and there is about a, a chance in a million that you're going to die of something, a car accident or mm -hmm. you know, uh, anything. During the pandemic here in New York, New Yorkers experienced 50 micromorphs per day. In other words, our chances of dying went up 50 times. Wow. Right? That's a lot. <laughs> in fact, uh, the comparison that the New York Times was making was interesting. It said that is a larger number, it's a higher number of micromorphs than those experienced by American soldiers in Afghanistan in 2010, which was one of the most horrible years for the war. In other words, living in New York during a pandemic is actually more dangerous than living in Afghanistan in the middle of a war. That puts things in perspective, right? It's like, ah, oh, okay. <laughs> so now you could read something like that and say, oh my gosh, I, I, this is the end, I'm, I'm going to die. And so I can, you know, react emotionally you know, with anxiety and things like that. That would be the wrong way to do it. What it is, is I read this and I said, oh, that's interesting. So I better redouble my efforts of doing something meaningful during my day. Because as it turns out, at the moment, I have 50% more chances than normal to die. So, you know, might as well do the best of what I can. So in other words, the message here is actually a positive one, mm -hmm. uh, kind of, you know, counterintuitively, that by, by thinking, by reflecting on death, by un understanding and, and accepting that death is universal, it will happen. It, no matter how much you don't want to think about it, it will happen. And incidentally, Seneca says, it's going to be a major test of your character. When, when you're approaching that, how are you going to approach it? How are you going to you know, react to the situation? How are you going to prepare for the situation? Are you okay with you know, your, your relatives, your loved ones? Uh, you know, in what situation are you? I have, um, in my family, for instance, experienced situations where um, close relatives of mine had been at, at, you know, constantly sort of fighting back and forth, even though they loved each other and they, et cetera, et cetera. But they come you know, constantly back and forth up until one of them died. Hmm. And then, there is, then I witnessed the regret of the other one who kept saying, oh my gosh, I should have you know, done something earlier. Why didn't she do something earlier? Because she refused to accept the notion that one of the, the two of them was going to die first. You know? And so, so she, they always took that, uh, these two individuals, they always took life as essentially indeterminate or indeterminate length. Like, oh, it's not, it's, it's not going to happen now. So I have time, even if we fight now, I have time to go back and, you know, patch up things. Mm -hmm. And then it happened one last time and there was no time to go back and patch up things. So yeah. that's one of the things that, that it's helpful about thinking about, you know, reflecting on your own death. But the more important message is positive. It's like, okay, well, I have to die. I mean, Epictetus, so I think the very first sentence that I read by Epictetus is right at the beginning of the discourses. And it says, in the, in the first volume of the discourses, and he says, uh, Yes, we have to die, but it looks like it's not going to be today. On the other hand, I'm hungry, so let's go out for lunch. <laughs> right? So it's like, when I read that, I said, wow, okay, <laughs> that's great. So that's the point. The point is not to indulge in sort of anxiety or anything like that. The point is, okay, this is going to happen, and I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. Meantime, I have other things to do, and I'm going to redouble my efforts to do those things well, because, precisely because I don't have an infinite amount of time. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. And it re reminds me of a personal experience of, of myself. Um, before lockdown, my partner and I, we, we went for a walk. Um, we're trying to get to a park, very nice park. And to get to the park, we had to walk through a cemetery. 
Yeah. And as we were walking through the cemetery, uh, my partner stopped and were reading the, the dates and the names of uh, people on the tombstones in, in quite awe and fascination. Like, oh, wow, look, these people lived in the 1800s and they lived to 78. And um, she was fascinated by it. And for me, I couldn't wait to get out of the cemetery as quick as humanly possible. Um, but she enjoyed um, just thinking about that, you know, they were just like us and 1800s is a very long time. And, um, uh, you know, eventually this is where we're going to end up. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a real eye opener for me. You I know, mean, somebody who reads a lot, reads a lot of kind of philosophy, I thought that I can relate until I was standing there and yeah. I just had the life drained out of me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. In fact, what you, what you just described, I actually do it as a, on a regular, more or less regular basis as an exercise in contemplation of death. Because it's one thing to just sit down in your desk and say, oh, yeah, one of these days I'm going to die. Sure, fine. Um, it's another thing if actually I, I usually go more before the pandemic. I would go downtown. I live in Brooklyn. I would go into Manhattan. There's a beautiful cemetery right in the middle of, you know, near Wall Street. And um, uh, there are graves from the 1700s and 1800s. And it's a beautiful, peaceful spot in the middle of a, this chaotic city, right? And I go there on a more or less regular basis. And I do exactly what your partner did. I would walk very slowly and look at the names, look at the dates, and you know, reflect on the fact that these people had lives. And then those lives mattered mm-hmm. to them and to the people that knew them, to the people that loved them, right? Even though we don't know who the, these people are now, not for the majority of the cases, it turns out there are a couple of famous uh, graves uh, there, so we know about those. But most of, people, of those people are, you know, I don't know who they, they are. And that experience always makes me uh, more peaceful on the one hand. Um, I used to suffer from anxiety when I was younger, from anxiety of dying, and I don't anymore. Um, and it makes me more peaceful, but it most, mostly it makes, it makes it so that when I get out of it and I rejoin the rest of the city, I say, okay, good, what, what, what can I do now for the rest of my day and use this these, uh, time that I have in, in, in the fullest way possible. Am I correct in my understanding that at some point Seneca would go to sleep at night thinking this will be my last day? And so when he woke up in the morning, he was pleasantly surprised that he was he's still alive. Is, is, that, is that true? Yes, uh, that is true. Um, that's because he was getting old uh, mm-hmm. by the standards of the time. I mean, he died when then, I think he was 69 when he died. And, and he didn't die of natural causes. He, he had to commit suicide on the, on the uh, order of the Emperor Nero because Nero suspected Seneca of being part of a conspiracy mm-hmm. against, uh, against the Emperor. Uh, but nevertheless, he was getting old. So he wrote the letters to his friend Lucilius, which are major Stoic texts, uh, in the last probably two or three years of his life. And so he knew that. And he also, incidentally, Seneca was sick for most of his life. He suffered, suffered from a respiratory ailment, actually, oh, really? as it okay. turns out. First of all, he got, when he was young, he uh, got struck probably by tuberculosis. And he moved to Egypt uh, to stay with an uncle and aunt of his. And he stayed there for several years until he recovered. But then for the rest of his life, he suffered from asthma. And uh, there's a letter, there's a poignant letter to, that he wrote to his friend Lucilius where he says, you know, the other night I had an attack and I thought I was dying. I, 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 my breath was, you know, I couldn't breathe and I thought that was it, that was the end of it. And that's where he says, but I recovered and now I'm so happy that I can actually have, live another day and write a letter to you, my friend, and, you know, and enjoy uh, the company of my, my wife and my, my friends and so on, so and write about philosophy, etc. So it is, um, it is this, this notion that uh, you take something that most people take as a negative 
you don't take it as a negative. You take it as a as a given fact of life. It's neither good or nor bad. You know, the the fact that we have to if there is a, if there is something factual about life, um, it doesn't come with a pre-labeled judgment. You know, death doesn't come with bad mm-hmm. uh, attached to it. That's our own judgment. Right? Sure. That we we project that judgment, and uh, and therefore we can revise that judgment. We can say instead of bad, you say, okay, well, that's just something that happened to everybody, and as such, I don't. I can't really complain about it. Um, one of the arguments that the Stoics, by the way, made about um, about that and why why, why shouldn't, you shouldn't worry about death is because he said, well, so what is death really? It's lack of conscious experience. Your conscious is gone. Uh, you don't feel anything, which means that feeling death itself, the condition of being dead, it's it's nonsensical because there's nobody going to, you're not going to be there. As the Epicureans put it, when death is here, you are not there and vice versa. So there's nothing really to fear about that. Now, of course, the process of dying is a different matter because it can be painful and yeah. so on and so forth. But once you're dead, you're dead. That's it. Mm-hmm. Done. Done. Um, but interestingly, they use something called the symmetric, the symmetry argument. They say, look, so you're living a certain amount of years and then you're dead for the rest of eternity. Um, and you seem to be very worried about this thing that, you know, this notion that you're, that you're not going to be alive for the rest of eternity. But if you think about it, you were also not alive for a long time before you were born, hmm. for about the same time, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't seem to bother you. <laughs> so why are you bothered by this? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, didn't, you were not bothered before because you had no consciousness. Well, guess what? You're not going to have consciousness <laughs> once you're dead. So why is this, is this so bothersome, this thing? Focus on what you're doing right now. You happen to be alive right now. That's where your agency is maximized. Don't regret the past because it's gone. Don't think too much about the future because it's not here yet. Act right here, right now, because that's where your agency is maximized. Mm, See okay. what you can make of this moment. Interesting. And which of the Stoic philosophers, Massimo, famously said, here and now? That's Epictetus. Mm. It's actually in one of uh, Epictetus' fragments. Uh, we, don't, we don't know exactly where he said it, as it turns out, because Epictetus didn't didn't really write anything. Uh, what we have from Epictetus are, are four volumes of the discourses and the, and the handbook. And those are both, both of those were compiled by one of his famous students, Arian uh, Nicomia. Uh, so he didn't write actually anything. Uh, but one of the fragments that we have, preserved by other authors, uh, has this famous phrase, ik et nunc, here and now. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. All right. Um, if we talk a little bit about Marcus Aurelius, who was one of the um, emperors at the time and a great figurehead of Stoic philosophy. You know, he lived through the Antonine Plague um, at the time, an ancient pandemic that wiped out, I think it was a third of the population, I might be wrong. Um, what is your understanding of how he lived through those times and what was his approach to the plague? Yeah, he probably died of it, incidentally, um, mm. although several years after the plague began. And uh, certainly his co-emperor, Mark, uh, Lucius Verus, uh, died of the plague, which was probably, we think, smallpox, uh, although it's, it's hard to tell for, for sure. And you, you're right, it was the, the, the worst uh, plague to hit the ancient world period. It, the estimate is that between two and five million people died as a result of it. And it was brought back to Rome, to the empire, by the legions uh, from the eastern frontier who had successfully fought a, a war against the Parthians, but unfortunately for them, they also contracted the plague and brought it, and brought it back. Um, Marcus Aurelius approached the plague in the way, in the same way in which he approached all of the other tribulations of his of his reign. Uh, Marcus had several problems to deal with. He had two frontier wars: one on the east against the Parthians, and one on the north against uh, 
some German tribes. Both of them were defensive wars. In other words, the, the, those, the Roman Empire was being attacked from outside, and Marcus had to defend uh, to defend it. He had to deal with deal with the Antonine plague. He also had to deal with one of his lieutenants rebelling and trying to become emperor himself. Um, and apparently, he had to deal with an unfaithful wife. So he had a fairly troublesome, <laughs> you know, troubled life. Um, but if you read the meditations, that's one of the reasons the meditations is such an incredible uh, piece of writing. It, it was his personal diary, right? It was not meant for publication. So he's talking to himself, although interestingly, uh, he's doing that in, second, in the second person. He says, he writes things like, you know, you are thinking this, you are doing that, right? And it turns out the modern psychologists suggest that you should write your diary in that way because it helps detach yourself emotionally from, mm. from the situation, right? If you write in the first person, it becomes immediately emotional. If you write in the second person, there's a little bit of distance uh, that you put between yourself and, and the kinds of things you're trying to analyze. Um, so, you know, Marcus Aurelius uh, always had the same attitude. That is, well, events are outside of my control. What I can control is how I deal with events, how I mm. react to events. So I'm going to try to do my best. And he was very cognizant, even though he was the most powerful man in the, in the Western world at that time, obviously. Um, he was very cognizant of the limitations uh, that he had, you know, the constraints that he had. Uh, at some point, there's this beautiful passage in the meditations where he says, don't wait for Plato's Republic. Do whatever little you can right now because it, because it matters. And not waiting for Plato's Republic was his way to say, don't wait for utopia. Don't wait for the, for the ideal world to, to mm. actually happen because that's not going to be in your lifetime, yeah. if ever. However, he says, do whatever little you can um, and do it now, do it to your best, because it matters, right? So he says, no matter what you do, whether, the, whether you're the emperor or whether you're you know, sort of a regular citizen, you, you need to do the best that you can. And that's the reason for that is because that's what you can do and because it actually matters to other people. You're making other people's lives better. You always, uh, Marcus Reyes always reminded himself that, uh, his goal in life was to improve human living, the human cosmopolis. At some point, he says to him, he reminds himself that, sure, as emperor, he, of course, his duty is to run. But as a human being, his duty is to humanity at large. Yeah. So whatever he can do to help things out, he was, that, was, that was his goal. Mm. This is quite timely, given what's going on around the world right now with this coronavirus pandemic and lockdown Indeed. in large parts of the world. Um, you know, there are, there's so much fear and uncertainty in the world today. Nobody knows when and if this virus will pass, you know, how long we will be in lockdown, you know, will things ever get yeah. back to normal? Is there a world depression looming around the corner? There's so many questions. Um, and here's, here's a piece of advice about that, if you, if you don't mind. Yeah, so sure. um, I was actually talking to my daughter the other day. Uh, about this, and I mentioned this uh, story that concerns James Stockdale. Uh, James Stockdale is a modern stoic, boy, he died a few years ago, modern stoic, and uh, he was, uh, he became famous probably because he was the running mate of uh, Ross Perot uh, in the 90s. Mm. But before that, he was a Navy pilot, and uh, he was involved in the Vietnam War, and at some point he got shot down uh, in Vietnam and, and captured. And uh, before, in going back to the Navy, however, before the beginning of the war, he actually studied philosophy at Stanford. And his professor um, gave him a book uh, when, when, at the end of the semester. And he said, you know, I think given, given who you are and what you're about to do, I think this is going to be helpful to you. And, uh, and he gave him a copy of Epictetus' handbook. And uh, Stockdale just read the whole thing, you know, cover to cover several times, kind of memorized passages because he, he thought that it was very helpful. When he was shut down in Vietnam, 
uh, he writes in his memoir that he thought that uh, to himself, okay, you're now about to leave the world as you know it and enter the world of Epictetus. Hmm. In other words, a world where you have very little control <laughs> over what's going to happen. Uh, and, and he said to himself, you're going to look at at least five years uh, down there. And sure enough, he was right. He actually spent seven years in, this, in the famous Hanoi Hilton, which was um, a prison and torture facility in Vietnam. And, and uh, so it was a really hard uh, thing to do. Now, when he got out, uh, he was asked, so what's the difference between those people that made it psychologically and those that didn't, that people that broke down and you know, either committed suicide or, or, or just lost it completely? And he said, oh, that's easy. Uh, the people that accepted the situation immediately and said, okay, here I am for an indeterminate period of time. I don't have much control over the situation. I certainly don't control when it's going to end. So let me see what I can do right here, right now. Mm. Those are the ones that survived. Interesting. The ones that kept saying to themselves in order to cheer themselves up, oh, come Christmas, we're going to be free. Or then Christmas comes and they're not. Oh, well. Uh, come Easter, we're going to be freed. And then Easter comes, and they're not. And then, oh, well, comes the summer. You're gonna, and after three or four or five disappointments like that, they break down. They, 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 they completely lose hope, and, and they spiral into a depression. So my suggestion, given the situation for the pandemic, is to assume that this is going to be for, uh, with us for a long time. Mm-hmm. So stop thinking about, oh, at the end of the month, things are going to be normal, or next month, things are going to be normal, or, you know, at the end of the year, things are going to be, we have no idea. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows when thing, when and if things are going to be yeah. back to normal. Yeah. And therefore, the, the best thing to do, both in terms of reason, the most rational thing to do, but also in terms of your own psychology, is to simply accept it and say, okay, this is the new life at the moment. Mm-hmm. It may or may not improve. It may or may not back, back, back to normal. But right now, given what it is now, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. What, what can I, uh, you know, what can I, uh, uh, how can I use this time in the best way so that my life is still meaningful, interesting, uh, and, and worth living? Um, don't, don't dwell too much on the past. Don't say, oh, I regret the fact that I could go to concerts. and that. Well, you can't right now. What are you going to do? Sure. Um, and don't think too much about the the future and keep hoping that things are going to be better tomorrow because they might not for a long time. And then you're going to set yourself up for a series of disappointments, which is going to take a serious uh, hit on your, on your ability to try it psychologically. I guess, you know, it's greatly summarized by that quote here and now, which is, you know, don't worry about, don't dwell on the past. You can't change it. Don't think about the future because it's not here yet. So all you have is, is right now, right? <laughs> um, and people say sometimes, you know, oh, well, but that means I'm not going to be planning for the future. Of mm. course you're going to be planning for the future. In fact, Seneca says explicitly, you need to plan for the future. Um, but the best way to plan for the future is to pay attention to what's happening right here, right now. Um, because you don't control the future. All you control is what you're doing right now about, right? So let's say that you're, for instance, uh, you're, you're planning on retirement. Well, what does that mean? It means that right here and now, you have to make decisions about your investments, about your finances, about what you're going to do and not going to do, et cetera, et cetera. So you're actually still living in the present, even when you're preparing for the future. What they mean is not to dwell on sort of uh, uh, fantasy, uh, fantasies about the future, because that's not particularly helpful. And then you're going to depict to uh, yourself a, a very rosy scenario, which is not likely to actually happen and then you're going to be disappointed you're going to say you know you're going to set up yourself with disappointment and it's going to be your own doing yeah yeah that's a great message um so just to finish up here 
Asima, I would like to talk a little bit about your podcast, a very successful podcast called Stoic Meditations, which since the first episode in uh, 2017, um, yes. it has over 190 episodes and has been downloaded close to 800,000 times and growing, which is phenomenal success. So well, very well done on that. Um, what's quite unique about this podcast that I find is that it's delivered in quite short two to three minute installments and I've listened to um, all of them. What was the thought process behind this approach? Yeah, no, that's an interesting question. Actually, you're right. It is surprising. We got more than 4 million downloads at this point, which is nothing that I expected at all. And that wasn't the reason I did it. What, what happened was this. This is what I do as part of my practice every day. I get up in the morning and I spend a few minutes reading a passage from one of the stories and then reflecting briefly about what that means and how it may or may not apply to my life. And then after a while that I was doing that, it struck me. It's like, wait a minute, this, this is something that could be useful to other people as well. And since I'm doing it anyway, um, pretty much in the way you actually hear podcasts, I said, well, I'm going to spend just a few extra minutes. As you know, as you notice, the podcast is not particularly you know, curated from a technical perspective. It's got, I actually got help from other people that some of the listeners, uh, you know, one of them sent me a, a free graphic for the, for the podcast. Another one sent me the, the actually uh, composed original music for, uh, for the introduction, uh, which was very nice. Initially, it was just me talking for three or four minutes. And that's still largely what it is. And I, I, I hear from people's feedback that it's, it is useful because what it is, is basically turned into, on the one hand, a guide to, uh, you know, stoic meditations uh, of a particular kind, uh, you know, reflections on, on passages from the ancient stoics. And on the other hand, it's kind of gradually become a commentary on all the available stoic texts because at this point I got, you know, dozens and dozens of episodes on the meditations, on the discourses by Epictetus, uh, lots of Seneca. Right now I'm going to, on the shortness of life, uh, and, and I'm almost done with this, like three or four more episodes, and then I will have basically an entire commentary on, on, the, full, on the full book. I've done on anger, uh, which was a lot of fun, uh, and so on. So it's, it's something that I do for myself, and then I figure this is going to be useful for other people, and uh, that's why it's out there. Awesome. No, great stuff. What can we expect from you in the near future, Masima? Are you working on anything in particular? Uh, yeah, I'm always working on something. Uh, <laughs> uh, because life is short, yeah. and therefore you need to make the best out of it. So, yeah, there is a new book that is coming out in September, uh, September 15. Uh, it's called A Field Guide to, ha to the Happy Life. Mm -hmm. And essentially is my personal sort of homage to Epictetus because it's a rewriting and updating of uh, Epictetus' handbook for the 21st century. So it's my attempt to uh, rewrite one of the classic stoic texts and updating it to modern sensibility but also modern science and modern ways of looking at things so it's not a new translation it's just a complete rewrite of uh, the handbook and that was a lot of fun to do and then uh, right now i'm working on uh, a series of lectures for the great lectures company um, they commissioned 24 lectures on stoicism and I'm writing the last few lectures and it's going to be, hopefully we're going to record episodes in September and it's going to come out in early January. Oh, fantastic. That no, sounds good. I look forward to it. Um, well, thank you for doing this, Massimo. This has been great. I really appreciate you, you uh, taking the time to come on the show. It was fun. Thanks for All having right. me.
And that's it, guys. I really hope you enjoyed the discussion here with Massimo Pierlucci. If you'd like to learn more, I would highly recommend his book, How to Be a Stoic. Visit Massimo's blog page at massimopierlucci.com and check out his podcast, Stoic Meditations, which is available on Spotify and iTunes, amongst other platforms. Thank you all for listening. There are many more great guests that will be joining us here on the Maverick on Air, so stay tuned. If you're enjoying the content, please do subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on either Spotify or iTunes. Your support would be greatly appreciated. Until next time, take care.